Be cautious so that you may not be burdened with debts. Friendship is better than wealth. Violence begets greater violence. It is through the justice of the ruler that plagues and great lightnings are kept from the people. Do not deride an old person though you are young, nor a poor one though you are rich, nor a naked one though you are well clad, nor a lame one though you are swift. We should listen doubly since we have two ears, but only one tongue. Do not give your wife authority over you, for if you let her stamp on your foot tonight, she will stamp on your head tomorrow. <laughs> Three slender things that best support the world. The slender stream of milk from the cow's dug into the pail, the slender blade of green corn upon the ground, the slender thread over the hand of a skilled woman. Four things cover up the truth love and fear, indulgence and poverty. The expressive economy of these sentences in their original Irish in every bit as much as in the English translations that I've just read bring to mind Joe Moran's description of the epigram as a concise literary form that taught the ancients how to turn a sentence, how to enclose a little world of meaning into a line of words. Rather more dramatically, Moran quotes the Scottish artist Ian Hamilton Finlay, who characterized the equally laconic form of the aphorism as the philosopher's hand grenade. Both of these descriptions draw attention um, to the deceptive simplicity of terse sayings, such as the ones I've just read, which encapsulate much of human experience in a way that is both universal and timeless. The trials and tribulations of everyday life, the difficulties of navigating human relationships, the moral principles that guide individuals and society as a whole, awareness of the inequalities that plague that society, the dangers of violence and falsehood, the importance of qualities such as learning, industry, good leadership and restraint in the face of impending disaster. All of the maxims I've cited can thus no doubt be said to have a strong resonance in the modern world, but they're in fact drawn from no less than seven different Irish language texts dating to as early as the 7th century, the contents of which are in many cases put into the mouths of legendary figures associated for, with an even earlier period. The texts in question are all to be found, of course, in Royal Irish Academy Manuscript 23N10, or the Book of Ballycommon, as we now know it, illustrating the fact that a really very remarkable proportion of that manuscript is devoted to what we might broadly characterize as wisdom literature. With regard to many medieval textual cultures, the designation wisdom literature has typically been applied to a somewhat disparate collection of material. As Vivian Law has remarked, the label refers not so much to a literary genre as to a content-based category, a class to which texts in a large number of genres may be assigned. In the context of scholarship on early medieval Ireland specifically, however, among the most recognizable representatives of this category are the four texts found on the vellum pages at the very beginning of the 23N10 manuscript, forming a kind of thematic cluster of sometimes overlapping material that's received varying uh, degrees of commentary and editorial attention from modern scholars. The first of these four texts is conventionally referred to as Chagasaga Cormac, or the instructions of Cormac MacArt, following the edition and translation of the text, based partly on this manuscript witness, that was completed in 1909 by Kuno Meyer as part of the Royal Irish Academy's Todd Lecture Series, in which he dated the composition of the work to no later than the first half of the ninth century. Tzagas Cormac is cast as a dialogue between the legendary 3rd century king of Katara, Cormac MacArt, and his successor, Caravla Lifacher, to whom Cormac imparts advice that for the most part takes the form of pithy two, three, or four word maxims. 
For example, as you can see um, in the excerpt cited under 2A in your handout, you just have to flip over the first page to see the translation. The text opens with Karavra's request that Cormac explain what is best for a king. And the latter replies with a long sequence of rhythmic, alliterative phrases, explaining that a king ought to demonstrate qualities such as firmness without anger, patience without strife, and affability without haughtiness, while his reign should be marked with prosperity, by prosperity, massed on trees, fish in river mouths, and so on. The explicit focus of this opening passage of Tagusca Chormek, as well as of several other sections of that text, on matters pertaining to kings and kingship specifically, has led many scholars to comment on its significance as a vernacular reflex of the medieval European didactic genre known as the speculum principum, or mirror of princes, a subdivision of sententious literature that consists of instructions to, pr to princes given by their tutors or advisors, often their fathers, whom they're about to succeed. I'll return to this question of the speculum principum genre momentarily when I turn to discuss another wisdom text preserved in 23N10. But for now, um, it's simply worth noting that royal figures are not the only members of society who might be said to have benefited from the advice conveyed in Tagusca Chormek. There are, for example, substantial passages in the text concerning topics such as how to best plead a law case, how to behave properly at a feast, how to maintain the body in a good condition, the signs of folly, and the worst type of housekeeping. This has led one scholar to characterize the work rather more broadly as the literature of a royal court, in which the advice given to a king is also seen to reflect upon the well-being of his household. Considerable emphasis is placed, for example, on the importance of justice for maintaining peace at all social levels and for the appropriate maintenance of the class structure. The wider audience that seems to be envisioned in some sections of Tagusca Chormek is likewise a feature of the other three wisdom texts situated, at least for the most part, on the first ten vellum pages of the Book of Ballycommon. The two texts that immediately follow Tagusca Chormek are cited in the manuscript catalogue by the titles Priyatra Flan Inga, or the Statements of Flan Fina, and Shen Friesa Fihel, the ancient um, sayings of Fihel. Now, these two texts share a common history in the manuscript tradition, however, the complexities of which are discussed in some detail by Colin Ireland in his 1999 edition of Briathra Flan Ina. Um, the full reference is given under 2b in your handout. Ireland presents a collection of gnomic material drawing in large part on the 23 and 10 witness that consists mostly of terse three-word maxims, typically arranged in sequences according to their opening words and marked by pronounced alliteration and repetitive syntactic patterns. Thus, for example, a series of 69 entries in Ireland's edition begins with the, with the verb ad coda, engenders, begets, such as ad coda, sochal, sedras, generosity engenders wealth, ad coda, shek, Briathra, love begets words, or ad kodda imrason imnad, contention causes anxiety. Another group of 110 maxims begins with the comparative form far, better, thus far suchanya shedov, a long life is better than riches, or far shid sochogad, peace is better than a successful war. The collections of maxims that form the second and third texts listed in the 23 and 10 catalogue have survived in three different versions or recensions, two of which are attributed to Flan Fina Mac Ossu, the Irish name uh, for King Aldrith, son of Ossu, who ruled Anglo-Saxon Northumbria from circa 685 to 705 and was renowned for his learning and piety. 
The third recension is, by contrast, associated with Juan Fichel, a legendary poet and judge who is himself often linked with the equally legendary King Conrick MacArth, the latter of whom, as we've seen, is the supposed authority for the first collection of instructions included in the 23N10 manuscript. The frequent overlap between all three of these texts clearly reflects the extent to which collections of gnomic material lend themselves to re-editing and rearrangement as they're copied over time, and may at least partly explain their transmission together in this one manuscript. The fourth and final text in the cluster of wisdom literature that forms the opening section of 23 and 10 is a large collection of gnomic material conventionally referred to as Treching Breath Fenya, literally a triad of judgments of the Irish, but more commonly called simply the Triads of Ireland, a designation um, that again follows an addition and translation of the work produced by Kuno Meyer as part of the Todd Lecture series in 1906. Although the title of the text derives um, from the fact that it consists mainly of ideas arranged in groups of three, 214 of them to be specific, the text edited by Meyer in fact also includes three duads, seven tetrads, one nonad and 31 single items relating to the monasteries of Ireland. The material found on pages 7 to 10 of 23N10 represents only a portion of the text of the triads corresponding to the middle sections of Meyer's edition, while the material that constitutes the opening and concluding parts of the edited collection are in fact found at a much later point in the paper portion of this manuscript, um, namely on pages 98 to 101. Um, and Kevin Murray has recently suggested that the order of this and other texts in the manuscript, as it's presently abound, um, it quote, seems to, to, to point to a fluctuation between paper and vellum as the texts were being copied. The later misbinding would seem to be the natural result um, of a desire of a later possessor of the manuscript to keep the vellum together at the start of the work. Uh, thus resulting in a number of texts being bound out of sequence, end quote. Meyer argued on linguistic grounds that the collection of triads was compiled sometime during the second half of the ninth century, making it roughly contemporaneous with Tegelskakormek. Although a clerical author for the work is suggested by the long list of monasteries with which it begins, the subject matter of the triads of Ireland is on the whole quite eclectic. It deals with topics ranging from legal and rhetorical principles to aspects of human behaviour and seemingly banal observations of nature. Thus one triad states, for example, and these are given under 2C in your handout, that the three oaths which do not require fulfilment are the oath of a woman in birth pangs, the oath of a dead man and the oath of a landless man. Well, another claims that the three glories of speech are steadiness, wisdom, and brevity. And yet a third, that the three keys that unlock thoughts are drunkenness, trustfulness, and love. It's clear, as Fergus Kelly has observed, that the compiler of this collection of triads drew on a number of different sources, some of which are still extant elsewhere. Thus, for example, a sequence of triads dealing with the qualifications of various professions can be shown to have been copied directly, or sometimes almost word for word, um, from surviving Old Irish legal texts. In this respect, the 9th century collection of triads in 23 and 10 should be viewed with an eye to the methods of compilation, revision, and rearrangement to what's, which I've already alluded in relation to the first three wisdom texts that precede it in the manuscript. At the same time, however, um, we should perhaps also beware of placing too much emphasis on the anthological or compilatory nature of these early Irish gnomic texts, lest this be to the detriment of our appreciation for the qualities of observation and insight to which they attest. For example, Kelly was of the view, although he admitted that it was impossible to prove, that most of the triads in the collection edited by Meyer were composed by a single individual, one who was possessed of, I quote, um, a rather cynical wit, a subtle feeling for nature, and a lively, adventurous type of mind. 
He's interested in shape, texture, mood, and sometimes links quite unlikely, unlikely images in a dramatic way, using his observations of nature to illustrate aspects of human behavior. Thus, the triad concerning the three slender things that best support the world, which I cited at the beginning of this talk, illustrates, according to Kelly, how the author of the triads was fascinated by the paradox that slender things, like a, a thread or a blade of corn or a stream of milk, support the vast phenomenon of life. <clears throat> the group of four wisdom texts that um, now stand at the opening of the Book of Ballycommon are not, however, um, the only examples of wisdom literature to be found in the manuscript as a whole. On page 49 of the Codex, for example, there's a copy of another text which shares many themes with this first group and which has, like some of those works, received comparatively substantial critical attention in modern scholarship. The text in question is that known as Aldot Morin, or the Testament Morin, um, Morin being a legendary judge in early Irish tradition. In his 1976 edition of the version of this text known as Recension B, um, Fergus Kelly dated the work to around the year 700 and suggested that the 23N10 witness preserved the most accurate version of the B recension, particularly in its preservation of archaic spellings. Following Tarnaisen, he also suggested that the Book of Ballycommon copy of Aldoch Morin might derive from the last early 8th century manuscript, Keen Dromashnachte, having been transmitted from that source as part of a group of 10 texts that show similarities in unusual abbreviations and recension. And you'll hear more about the, the Keen Dromashnachte text in the, in the first session of the conference tomorrow. <coughs> Kelly describes Aldoch Morin as essentially a text on how to be a good king, with emphasis on the crucial importance of the king's justice, fear flathaven. If the king is just, there will be peace and prosperity in the kingdom, and nature will reward him and his people with abundance of fruit, corn, fish, milk yields, fertility of women, and absence of plagues and lightning. Thus, from the perspective of its themes, if not from its dating, the work can be placed alongside Takas Gachormek as an example of the speculum prinkbum genre to which I've already briefly alluded. Here, however, um, advice on good kingly behaviour is instead put into the mouth of the legendary wise Judge Morin, who speaks indirectly to the young king Feradach Finn Fechnach via the intermediary of Morin's foster son, Neira. Moreover, the instructional mode introduced in the text prologue is not here developed in the form of dialogue, as in Tagus Gachormek, but by way of a series of maxims and injunctions marked by stylistic features, such as alliteration, parallelism, and repetitive opening formulae, similar to what we've already seen in relation to Briathra Plan Inda and Shandretha Fihl. And these are features that may indicate, here again, that Aldoch Moran was composed of different strata. An example of this that's frequently drawn upon by modern scholars to illustrate the text's concern with proper kingly behaviour is a long sequence of sentences that are given under number three on the third page of your handout, um, beginning with the phrase, it is through the justice of the ruler. Thus it's stated, for example, that it's through the justice of the ruler that he, the king, secures peace, tranquility, joy, ease and comfort that he dispatches great battalions to the borders of hostile neighbours, that every heir plants his house post in his fair inheritance, and that abundances of great fruit, tree fruit of the great wood are tasted. In this way, the text of Aldoch Morin illustrates the centrality of the notion, prevalent in a number of early medieval texts, that the well-being of not just the realm, but also the cosmos in the widest sense, is a direct consequence of the king's justice, here expressed as fear of 
On this basis, the subject matter of Aldous Moran has often been compared to the discussion of the Rex Iniquus, or the unjust king, found in the well-known 7th century Hiberno-Latin tract De Duo Decum Abusi with Cycli, on the 12 abuses or afflictions of the world, the Irish provenance of which has been argued by a number of scholars. The text of the 12 abuses um, is essentially, as Aidan Breen has put it, a collection of 12 succinct but comprehensive moral theological treatises on the chief sources of moral corruption within humanity which lead to its damnation. Um, the full list of them is given at the top of page 4 in your handout. The first six forms of negative behaviour described in the Latin text include abuses arising from individual vices, such as the old man without religion, the youth without obedience, or the woman without modesty. Well, the second set of six abuses deals with the breaches of public order and morality emanating either from general categories of individual, for example, people without the law, or from individuals invested with a general responsibility for the moral leadership and rectitude of society at large, such as the negligent bishop or the unjust king. Breen has argued, moreover, that the, the central inspiration for the entire framework of the Twelve Abuses um, is, is the exegesis of the ascent and descent of the, the angels upon Jacob's ladder, as described in the biblical book of Genesis. It's the ninth abusio in this list, that of the rex iniquis, or unjust king, which has drawn the most attention as regards the parallels between the Hiberno-Latin De Abusivis text and Irish vernacular Tagusca literature, as represented in our manuscript by Aldoch Moran and Tagusca Cormac in particular. The Latin text states, for example, that a king should avoid oppressing someone unjustly by force, that he should defend strangers, orphans, and widows, that he should prevent theft, punish adultery, avoid extolling the unworthy, control his temper, defend his country with strength and justice against enemies, and in everything, trust in God. As Rod Means has observed, although all of the categories of abuses dealt with in the De Abusivis text embody a contradiction inimical to right order, most of them merely occasion effects of an eschatological kind. The depiction of the rex iniquis stands alone, he argues, in that the consequences of negative behaviour on the part of this particular member of society, namely the king, are truly cosmological in scale. The rule of the unjust king will not only lead to a breach of peace and to all sorts of offences, but also to natural disasters, such as diminishing of the fruits of the earth, the death of loved ones and children, storms and winds disrupting the fecundity of earth and sea, and so on. In other words, as Means puts it, a breach of a fundamental cosmological rule, that is an act of injustice by the person who should be the supreme guardian of justice, sets the whole cosmos in disorder, and thus the concept of justice may be here used as a sort of definition of kingship. This concept, as we've seen, is quite clearly reflected in the emphasis on the king's embodiment of fear flothoven found in the Irish vernacular text Audoth Morin. It is noteworthy, however, that in, in rather striking contrast to the studies of the De Abusivis text that I've just cited, which clearly um, established that work's inheritance from biblical sources, some early scholarship on um, Irish vernacular wisdom texts, such as Aldoth Moran, um, were inclined to question the extent to which Christian themes and ideas might be considered integral to their composition. Thus, Roland Smith, in discussing the extant examples of vernacular Irish Tagusca texts, stated, quote, that the instruction materials so noticeable in early literature are a distinctly pagan tradition. Wherever Christian elements have crept in, as they have in several cases, they must be considered late additions due to the desire on the part of Christian scribes to overcome the pagan traditions by tempering them with Christian touches, end quote. 
Several decades later, Fergus Kelly, although acknowledging that Aldoch Modin must have taken roughly its present form over 200 years after the arrival of Christianity, still argued that it has yet to be shown that any of the ideas which it expresses are of Christian provenance. These assessments of the indebtedness or otherwise of the early Irish wisdom texts to biblical influences have been subject to substantial revision in more recent decades, however, as is illustrated by some of the discussions given under number five in your handout. Um, for example, Kim McCone commented on the various affinities that Aldoth Moran and Sagas Gachormek had to Old Testament wisdom literature as represented by Proverbs, Wisdom and Ecclesiasticus above all. He argued, I quote, that there can be little doubt that monastic literati drew pertinent parallels between their own gnomic literature and that of the Bible. It is, for instance, hardly a coincidence that Tagus Gachormek, which is cast in a question and answer form probably derived from the monastic schoolroom, represents the illustrious king of Tara in Ireland, Cormac MacArt, giving sectionalized practical and moral instructions to his son, just as the great king of Jerusalem in Israel, Solomon, is envisaged addressing various chapters of his proverbs to his son. Indeed, the perceived biblical significance of the legendary Irish wisdom figures of the pre-conversion era, such as Cormac MacArt and Morden, is further indicated by a Middle Irish text from another manuscript, um, part of which is given under, again under number five in your handout in which these authorities are described as two of three individuals in Ireland who believed in God before the coming of Patrick, a story that served, as Donoghal Koran has pointed out, to explain how righteous judgments in accordance with scripture could be precociously delivered in Ireland before Christianity had fully taken hold. Yet it's not merely the depiction of wisdom figures in Irish vernacular literature, but also the very form and content of the gnomic texts preserved in the Book of Ballycommon that are imbued with themes and resonances also prevalent in the wisdom books of the Bible. Even if it must be acknowledged, it isn't always easy to determine whether such similarities are the result of direct influence from one tradition to another, or simply arose independently from relatively commonplace observations of human behavior or natural phenomena. Nevertheless, it's difficult in considering the features of the Irish gnomic collections discussed thus far to avoid seeing the pertinence of James Crenshaw's description of the biblical proverbs as simple sayings that register a conclusion that has arisen through observation of nature, animal behavior, or human conduct. Its form is succinct, epigrammatic, and metaphorical, and sometimes takes the more distinctly pedagogical form of instructions. The numerous triads that comprise Trekking Brethbenia um, likewise find parallels in Ecclesiasticus and Proverbs, although as McCone has pointed out, the genre certainly developed a momentum of its own in early Christian Ireland. Indeed, um, the Irish vernacular texts exemplify in various ways all three of the fundamental types of wisdom identified by Crenshaw in relation to the biblical wisdom books, namely what he calls family, court, and theological wisdom, which differ in terms of, as he puts it, the goal envisioned, the stance, and the method adopted to achieve that purpose. Thus, the insights from nature and practical wisdom that are a feature of what Crenshaw calls family wisdom or folk proverbs find parallels in many of the simple maxims that comprise Briather Flan Ina, which is those given under number six in your handout. A skill is better than idleness. Excess talk is characteristic of indiscretion. Or um, much drinking is an inducement to much drunkenness. Rather banal observations of this kind place emphasis on the cultivation of biblical virtues such as industry, sobriety, and control of the tongue. Many of the wisdom texts in the Book of Ballycommon also reflect the biblical tension between a negative view of women as having been responsible for perverting a good creation and a more positive perception of them as a gift of God deserving of praise from husbands and children. 
The poem in Proverbs 31 on the wife of noble character, for example, um, part of which is given under 7a in your handout, declares how a good wife is worth far more than rubies, since her dignity and industry can enhance the reputation of a man in the community. This distinctly sympathetic, if rather pragmatic, perspective on the role of women in society is echoed in the Irish triad under 7b, which states that the three excellent things for a householder are proposing to a good woman, serving a good chief, and exchanging for good land. Or indeed, in the pair of maxims from Briatha Flantina under 7c, which succinctly declare that a good wife is the beginning of good fortune, and a bad wife is the beginning of misfortune. The comparatively positive stance regarding the female sex reflected in the vernacular examples I've just cited stands in sharp contrast, of course, to one of the most famous passages um, of the early Irish wisdom literature corpus, namely the unrelenting diatribe against women that forms section 16 of Meyer's edition of Tagusca Cormac. There, it's contended that women are not only sulky on a journey, tearful during music, and sorrowful in an alehouse, but also that they're waves that drown you, fire that burns you, two-edged weapons that cut you, moths for sticking to one, serpents for cunning, darkness and light, bad among the good, worse among the bad. I'll spare you the tedium of reading all 122 lines of this particular passage, um, and I'll merely pause to note that, rather interestingly, it doesn't in fact form part of the version of Tagus Gachormek preserved in the Book of Ballycommon. Um, the section was included in Meyer's edition on the basis of its occurrence in other manuscript witnesses of the text. Whether this was a mere accident of textual transmission or evidence of rather more enlightened thinking on the part of the 23 and 10 scribes, I can't say for sure. But um, Kelly's suggestion that the misogynistic tirade against women in some versions of Tagus Gachormek reflects an environment sated with female company and contemptuous through familiarity, may perhaps help us to situate the text as a whole in relation to Crenshaw's second category of biblical wisdom literature, which he refers to as court wisdom, namely material that's concerned more specifically with matters such as proper table manners, eloquence, propriety, humility before superiors, fidelity, and so forth, all of which are, of course, um, subjects that are treated in the Book of Ballycommon version of Tagusca Cormac. Theological wisdom is the broadest of the three categories of biblical wisdom identified by Crenshaw and has as its goal to provide education for everyone, regardless of social standing or vocational intention. This category is characterized, as Crenshaw puts it, by a religious dogmatism concerning proper conduct before God and humans, as well as fear of the Lord in the sense of that which every human being owes the creator. We might consider Aldoth Morin's bold, contrasting imagery of cosmological prosperity and disaster resulting from the just or unjust behavior of a king to provide an example of this kind of wisdom, even if its theological import isn't made very explicit in that particular text. Yet as Rob Means has shown, Aldrich Morin can be situated within the wider context of works which clearly viewed the withdrawal of divine favour to be a result of the sins of the individual, as well as the cause of meteorological, agricultural, biological, social and political disaster. The king, as ruler of the society to which those individuals belonged, had a duty to keep his subjects on the right moral path. We've seen already, for example, um, the affinities between the contents of Aldoth Moran and the depiction of the Rex Iniquus in the Hiberno-Latin tract De Duodecum Abusivis Cycli. The De Abusivis itself is not itself, of course, preserved in the Book of Ballycommon. In fact, all surviving manuscript copies of the Latin texts are found outside of Ireland. But a number of vernacular sources indicate that its moral teaching on negative paradigms of human behaviour continued to be known in Ireland well into the Middle Irish period, if not later. 
And indeed, one of the vernacular sources in question is a short text inserted by a later hand on page 27 of the Book of Ballycommon, which I think is actually one of the pages on view at the moment. Um, the text is given under number eight in your handout. And this passage, um, which was edited by Carl Marstrander in 1911, consists of a simple list of 14 negative types of behavior, many of which clearly correspond to the various abuses cited in the Hiberno-Latin De Abusivis tract. It includes things, for example, such as wisdom without works, old age without piety, riches without charity, a shameless woman, a king without counsel, a country without control, and a people without law. In this instance, however, the theological import of the wisdom conveyed is made much more explicit, since the passage is headed by the phrase, the things that are hateful to God. The significance of um, the biblical resonances that are to be found in the Irish vernacular works I've discussed up to this point becomes particularly clear if we turn um, briefly to consider some other texts in the Book of Ballycommon, which, although they may not immediately spring to mind as examples of early Irish wisdom literature, to the extent that texts like Tagus Gachormek or Aldoch Morin tend to do, nevertheless, nevertheless merit consideration alongside these works for various reasons. As Colin Ireland has observed, the preoccupation with individual conduct and its social consequences that we see in the texts I've considered thus far is also reflected in the full range of Irish ecclesiastical texts. Some religious writings, notably homilies and monastic rules, not only show a concern for proper conduct, but also display similarities in style and vocabulary um, with what Ireland calls secular wisdom texts. It's interesting that in illustrating this point, he in fact cites two texts which also form part of the Book of Ballycommon. One is the 7th century tract known as the Abgatir Chavad, the uh, alphabet of piety, a work that is ascribed in most of the surviving manuscript copies to Coleman MacBiolney, abbot of Linali in County Offaly, who died in the year 611. John Carey has described this text as a collection of precepts and maxims arranged in sequences of varying lengths, which reflect a keen perception of the ethics and psychology of the contemplative life. While the text draws for inspiration on a variety of works, such as the monastic treatises of the 5th century monk John Cassian and the sapiential books of the Old Testament, this vast range of source material has been distilled down by the Irish author of the alphabet into, as Carrie elegantly puts it, statements whose crystalline economy of expression demands slow and meditative reading. Echoing both the question and answer structure we've seen already in Sagaska Chormek and the terse maxim form characteristic of Shan Vietha Fichel, the text asks, for example, the simple question given under 9a in your handout of what should be avoided by a holy person, the answer to which includes things like recurrent anger, vanity without skill, boldness towards a superior, mocking the brethren, and so on. Another passage from the same text, um, given under 9b, employs the Greek rhetorical device known as sorites, um, neatly described by Crenshaw as ideas that are strung together like pearls on a necklace. Thus it reads, the body shelters the soul, the soul shelters the mind, the mind shelters the heart, the heart shelters faith, faith shelters God, God shelters man. The very structuring of this passage closely echoes, of course, that found in the famous lines from chapter 6 of the Biblical Book of Wisdom that are cited at the very top of the first page of your handout, where kings are advised that they can ensure a successful and long-lasting reign by seeking out wisdom and understanding of God. In a similar way, the not insubstantial collection of monastic rules preserved in the Book of Ballycommon, some of which Elizabeth Boyle has discussed um, already in the last session of this conference, 
um, can be compared in terms of both their structure and contents to Aldachthmoren and the four wisdom texts situated at the beginning of the manuscript. Thus, the text known as the rule of Alva of Emli is presented as the advice of a venerated elder, in this case, Alva, abbot of Emli, through an intermediary to Owen Maxaron, a, a younger person about to assume a position of authority. Although taking the form of a poem of about 70 quatrains, its opening thus echoes the prologue to Aldacht Moren, where the wise judge's advice um, to Faradacht Finfechnach is presented through the intermediary of the young Neira. Within this instructional framework, the rule presents, as illustrated under 10a in your handout, a string of precepts outlining the monastic life and defining the proper mental attitude necessary for that life. Similarly, the metrical rules attributed to the 9th century Irish um, king bishop Cormac MacLillanon include such advice as that found under 9b in the handout, namely, a grateful gift is speech without boasting to be ever at the will of the king. Humility to fitting folk would be no folly, no disadvantage. Situated not far from these texts is yet a third metrical rule, given um, under 9c, which comprises a series of moralistic poems on themes such as the occupations of a bishop or of the abbot of a church, as well as one on the subject of recht rig, the law or authority of a king. In other ways, too, we can see the moral, cosmological and theological concerns expressed in the works I've discussed thus far, echoing throughout other texts in the Book of Ballycommon. For example, the manuscript contains a summary version of the tale Tolgobwetsna Zadzeriga, the destruction of Zadzeriga's hostel, which recounts the downfall as a consequence of a wrongful judgment of King Conor, a figure perhaps patterned, as Ralph O'Connor has suggested, on the doomed biblical King Saul. Echoing the principles of kingship ideology set out in the Irish Tagusca text, the Tolgob presents, as O'Connor puts it, a dramatization of the consequences of a breakdown in fear flothoven in terms of social chaos and a catastrophic end to the king's reign, including an element of divine retribution which matches the, warning, the warnings of De Duodecim Abusivis and the Latin mirrors for princes. Still other narratives in the Book of Ballycommon, in particular those which, like Aulacht Moran, um, have been argued to derive from the now lost Keen Dromoshnachta manuscript, likewise share this governing theme of kingship. As John Kerry has demonstrated in the article cited under number 11 in your handout, for example, and the two narratives, Echtre Chonla and Baile Chun Chathag, situated immediately before and after the Togol on pages 70 and 73 of the manuscript, might be seen as complements of one another. In one, the legendary High King Khan Kid Khathach predicts the future of his dynasty, beginning with the reign of his son Art, while in the other, another one of Khan's sons renounces princely rank to depart to the other world, and Khan is left with Art alone. In other words, as Kerry puts it, in one tale, the earthly sovereignty of the forebears of the Enel dynasty is affirmed, while in the other, it's transcended, in each case, in the person of one of the sons of Khan Kid Khathach. Tales such as Echrachonna, the Togol, and Bailechuin serve as a reminder that narrative could function with the didactic purpose of moral teaching in early Irish literature just as much as in the biblical books of wisdom, a point which James Crenshaw exemplifies by way of the tale from chapter 7 of Proverbs, which deals, details how a seductress leads an unfortunate man to his ruin. In this regard, it's worth remembering that maxims and proverbs can themselves often come to form an integral part of early Irish narrative texts. One might think, for example, of the collection known as Briathur Hagas Concullen, or the wisdom sayings of Cuchullen, um, which is incorporated into a saga, saga text um, preserved in other manuscripts, in the Shergluga Concullen. There's some discussion of that uh, particular text under number 11 in your handout. So, 
to sum up, um, this paper has admittedly ranged over a large quantity of complex material in a relatively short space of time, but it's aimed in so doing to draw together some textual and thematic threads in a way that can only claim to have done partial justice to the work of the compilers and scribes of the Book of Ballycommon. It becomes clear when we approach the text I've discussed today using this somewhat wide lens that the 23 and 10 manuscript is not simply a miscellany of disparate, unconnected remnants of the work of the ancients, to adapt slightly uh, the phrase that forms part of the title of this conference, um, but that certain thematic refrains can be seen to echo their way through the manuscript as a whole, all of which might be said to fall under the very broad umbrella that is the designation wisdom literature. We can see emerging from these texts and indeed from the manuscript as a whole, a vision of not just the ideal Christian king, but also of the ideal Christian society of which Dr. Boyle spoke in her paper earlier this afternoon. In this regard, the 23 and 10 manuscript stands as a valuable testament to Ireland's very early participation in a, in a very old um, and long-standing literary phenomenon marked by its universality, one which has been variously described as being dedicated to articulating a sense of order providing a definition of appropriate behavior and the benefits that accrue from it, of serving to make sense of extreme adversity and vexing anomalies, and of transmitting this hard-earned knowledge so that successive generations will embody it. So on this last note, I might conclude this paper by returning to the very beginning of the Book of Ballycommon and to the text with which I began my discussion, the Mitagas Gachormek. Um, you might recall that in the very opening passage of that text, cited back under 2A in your handout, the young heir Karudra asks Cormac the question of what is best for a king, a topic with which, as we've seen, such a great number and variety of the texts found throughout the 23 and 10 manuscript are concerned in one way or another. Among the many bits of advice that Cormac offers his young successor is the counsel that a ruler should take care of ancient lore. This sentiment is echoed a little later in the text, when Karuda asks Cormac what's best for the good of a Tuath, the kingdom or the people of the kingdom, and the latter replies that they, in turn, should follow that ancient lore. Thanks to the labour and learning of Sean Omuilhonra and his scribes, not to mention the care of this wonderful library in which their manuscript is preserved, um, we ourselves are today in a fortunate position to be able to follow the advice of Cormac, and indeed of many others, much of which, as we've seen, um, has not only stood the test of time for many centuries, but is likely to continue to do so for quite a long time yet. Thank you.